I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Snafu listeners, this is your host, Ed Helms. I'm back in your feed for a bonus episode of Snafu. Abel Archer, at the very heart of it, is a story about the nuclear conundrum, how the arms race left us with no winning options and an unacceptable margin for error. And no one summed this up better than the movie War Games. The only winning move is not to play. You may recall back in previous episodes, we had great conversations with the movie's star and national treasure, Matthew Broderick, as well as its director, John Badham. Those interviews were so fun and cool, but we just couldn't include all of it in those earlier episodes. So, as a little treat, here's a bonus episode where we dive a little deeper into all things war games. So what was what was just like a normal day in the life of Matthew Broderick around 1982, 83? Well, let's see. 82, I would be graduating high school. Which was in New York City? Yes. And I was very happy to be done with that. And uh, I didn't want to go right to college. I remember going to a college counsel, a counselor at school who was supposed to tell you what schools you should apply to, you know, when you're a junior or whatever. And um, I remember she kept mentioning colleges that I had never heard of. <laughs> so that that was a bad sign. Your guidance counselor didn't believe in you is what no. you're saying. <laughs> no, it, I left the meeting less than, I was not, I thought to myself, I'm going to have to find something else. Because nothing that she mentioned, not only were they in schools that I had heard of, but none of them specialized in anything that I was at all good at. So I was taking a year to kind of see if I could, you know, get a job or something acting. And that's, I knew that's what I wanted to do, but I had no idea if I would, you know, be somebody who could do that. But so, the, so, my memory of that time is 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 trying to basically become an actor. What was the lead up to the sort of war games opportunity? Well, 
I started in high school doing a bunch of plays, and um, I felt I was good at it. Now, why I felt that, I don't know. But um, I mean, I was better at that than at many of my other endeavors in high school. I'll put it that way. So, <laughs> Same so, here. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. So it wasn't that I was good at it. It was that I wasn't as bad at that as I was at Algebra 2. <laughs> There was nothing else to go after. <laughs> really, that's the truth. And uh, I went to uh, HB Studio, which was in the village. It still is, I think. And uh, I took classes. Sure. And then I, my first girlfriend. And so I had a kind of a great summer, as I remember. I auditioned for everything. And, you know, there was this movie called The Genius that I auditioned for. That it wouldn't let me read the script, but it was a, you know, a boy at a, and a computer. And and then I somehow got a callback and another callback. And then I read for the new casting director and then maybe even a third casting director. The Genius Became More Games, by the way. This was its original title. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then somehow uh, I got a play in New York which was, right. you know, very successful play. And suddenly that everything changed. Then it was like, oh, he's the guy from that play, you know, everybody. And I got a Neil Simon movie out of that. Mm -hmm. So while I was shooting the Neil Simon movie, they wanted me to read again for War Games. And I had now read for it, I don't know, a million times. And had, had you already read for the for the director yes. at the time was Martin Brest? Martin Brest, yes. And you, you'd already read for him. I had. So... My dad, who was an actor, said, ask the director, Herbert Ross, of the of the Neil Simon movie, uh, ask if they can see some dailies. So I, I somehow had the nerve to ask my agent, and, and Herbert Ross, who was directing the Neil Simon movie, was like, sure, absolutely. And he ran, he picked out some nice scenes of mine and uh, showed it to Marty Brest. You know, they screened it in those days. It wasn't like, sure. you know, click on it. It was... They came and watched it at, you know, the studio. Yeah, that's really cool. He really believed in you. And made the effort, you know, and uh, so you you need all that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And so so finally you get the part. Had you read the full script at this point or were you just reading sides? Or did you know a lot about what the movie was? Around that time, I think I, I finally was, was allowed to read the whole thing. Uh -huh. It was really a very fun read, you know, it was... Uh, you just really wanted to know how it was going to end up. You know, it wasn't the most like intense acting part or something, but I just thought this is a thriller. You know, I loved the story. The only, you know, my father was dying and uh, actually died during it. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think of that movie without that. Sure. To tell you the truth. It's a little almost like a surreal memory to me because I was on the one one hand so pleased with myself and, and you know, excited about what had happened to me and, and also at the same time, the absolute opposite. And you guys were close. Very close. And, uh, yeah. you know, he'd been sick for, I knew that it was coming. It wasn't like that. But, you know, there's no way to not... Uh, you know, he died during it, and I was shooting it one or two days later, I think. Wow. You know, I didn't really want anybody to say, how are you or anything. And they, sure. and, and they didn't, you know, and uh, we went on with it. I'm very glad I had it. It uh, probably yeah. saved my, you know, life. That's so fascinating. I was in, I was shooting The Office when my dad passed. Oh. 
Really? And went back and it was the same thing. I was so grateful to have that. Something to put your mind on for a while, right? Yeah. And so all the excitement of of this first experience, he must have been so proud that you got this opportunity. He was, definitely. So then even the release of the movie is so bittersweet. Yeah. His not being there. Yeah, definitely. You know, but I, th- I like to think he was glad to see that he had that he left while I had some hope of a career. Sure. Or, you know, making a living. Yeah. And and, and truthfully, it was such a break from that that I, I didn't feel it at work. You know, I just felt the, the movie. So I, I uh, yeah. you know, I threw myself into it. And uh, I loved the story, you know. Yeah, it really is. It's like kind of a perfect screenplay as a thriller uh, with with comedic elements. And it, 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 there's never a wasted scene or a dull moment. It's, it's, it, did it change a lot from those early drafts to what it eventually was? It did. I, I mean, um, did I re- are you talking to John Badham too? In the summer of 1982, I get a call from my agent at the time, uh, Lee Rosenberg, who said, there's this project over at United Artists that they're in trouble with the director and they wonder if you would uh, take a look at it. And I'm recommending that you don't take a look at it because if they're in trouble with the director, that means the whole project is troubled. So you better stay away from it. But I have to make the call and tell you about it. And I replied to him, I said, but Lee, what if the script is any good? So we we read it and I'm going, oh my God, I am so lucky to be reading this script. This script is wonderful. I told that to Leonard and I said, let me think about it and and I'll get back to you. He said, well, we're shooting every day, so you better be fast about this. So I started driving home and I got about three blocks from MGM and I stomped on the brakes. Now this is before cell phones, and I had to find a phone booth. And I said, Leonard, I know what it is. These actors, these characters aren't having any fun. The scene that you showed me was uh, Matthew Broderick showing Ali Sheedy how he could change her grades at school on the, on the school computer. These actors are playing it like like they're going to blow up the White House. And instead, if I, if I could change a girl's grades in, in, in my high school, I would be peeing in my pants with excitement. This would be the most fun thing. I would just be so thrilled and scared and excited about it. I said, I think that's where the director has gone off track. I mean, he was on schedule. And from what I could what I could understand, everything had been beautifully prepared. But suddenly they were getting a very dark film. So I said, well, if, if I come on, uh, that's that's what I would do. I would make make those alterations, make it make it funny. So they said, well, when can you start? I couldn't believe I'd gotten the job. And then the director got fired. <laughs> so <laughs> I was pretty sure I was out, too, by the right, way. Right, sure. 
There's no way that there's no way a director gets fired and the lead actor isn't like, uh, I probably wasn't doing the right thing either. <laughs> so wait a minute, they're throwing out two weeks of work I just did. That's interesting. And uh, and uh, you know, John Badham came and basically fired absolutely everybody, but kept me and Ali Pshidi hmm. and one or two others. Uh, so, but he was the, our first meeting with John Badham. He was like, "I'm going to keep both of you." Well, that was that was a good choice, but I also wanted the ability to replace anybody that I thought maybe was not cast as best they could be. Uh, so we made a couple of changes in the secondary cast. Our general of, of NORAD, we recast him and one or two other characters. But Ali Sheedy and Matthew Broderick uh, were wonderful. I mean, they were terrific. For example, w the scene that we're... Uh, Matthew takes her into his bedroom and shows her how he can change the grade. We decided that we needed to reshoot that because, as we said earlier, they were not having any fun. And I knew that the scene needed to be much, much better than what had been originally shot, not just a little bit better. And so we, we did uh, a few takes, and they were stiff as boards. These two poor actors were so scared that they too were going to, you know, be axed out of the movie and get fired. Uh, we're, we're stiff as they could be. And so I'm starting to try to loosen them up to entertain them. I'm running in. I'm making bad dad jokes, which is the only kind of jokes I know how to make and being silly. Uh, and after about nine or 10 takes, I, I called a halt to everything. And I, and I said, okay, all right, we're going to take a little bit of a break here for a minute. And Matthew and Allie, you come with me. And, and I took them outside the stage at MGM, which is a wonderful big old movie lot. And I said, what we're going to do here is we're going to run around, have a race around the sound stage, the outside. And the last person back, has to sing a song in front of the crew. And they went, what? I said, yeah, here we go. Okay, let's go. And we ran and ran and ran and ran. And of course, I was the last person back. I was a good 20 years older than them. And so now I had to sing a song in front of the crew, which was the dumbest song I could think of, which was something called the Happy Wanderer about a guy who's wandering through the Alps and going, Valderib, Valderib, Valderib. Okay, okay, we got through that. Okay, let's go for a take. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved an F. Do you? You can't do that. Already done. That was the one that we printed. Uh, just, you know, you do what you can to loosen people up and get them, uh, get them there and to let them know that it's okay to have fun. Uh, and, and this is, we're not curing cancer here. We're just making a movie. The first day, first couple of days shooting with John Badham, I was like, he's so different than Martin Brest too. Uh-huh. Martin Brest was very uh, methody and actory, you know, and you should feel a certain way and get into it. And 
So now I'm doing a scene and, and I finish the scene, you know, doing something on the computer and I hear a voice from, from behind the camera. John Badham says, and smile, smile, will you smile? Like he was telling me what face to make. <laughs> what uh-huh. was, and you're acting. like, that's not acting. I was you like, just want well, me to smile? Martin Brest never did that, but <laughs> yeah. But sure enough, I, I smiled. You know, I did everything he and thank God he, he kept me. He kept me around. That's so funny. Do you uh, that's that actually raises uh, a interesting question separate from all this. Yeah. Uh, do you do you like a director who is very literal like that or do you prefer someone who's a little more kind of like in the emotion of it and and in in the sort of like Yeah. Do you have a strong preference? Well, you know, my preference is somebody who's like I can understand and who I think is good. I don't know how to. Yeah. Right. But like, I I don't mind people who, I know you're not supposed to say smile, but if it's, if it's somebody good and as John Badham is and, and in a way that's, they might as well just say it. Cause I see directors sometimes bend over. I'm sure you feel this way too. Of course. You know, you can see their brain trying to say, I know I'm not supposed to tell them to be angry or happy. Or give them a line reading or, or any of Exactly. That. Yeah. So how, what, how many words can I use to make a line reading? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, just tell me the line read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just, I'm very practical that way. And I tell directors sometimes like, I can feel you dancing around this. Just tell me what you want. Like, Definitely. I love, I love a mechanical direction. Like, me too. You know, like hold your arm higher. Okay, sure. I'll yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, want. then I can I can understand what they mean, and then I, I can I can turn it into actory terms if I want or not. Right. Yeah. And and see, I even sometimes, and this doesn't come off so well, but I'll sometimes tell a director who's really hemming and hawing, "Why don't you show me?" Which I like to make them feel horrible and uncomfortable and. Act this out for me. You play me. Yeah. I'll read the other part. You, you show me what you want. If they're being really irritating, I'll do that. That's great. Just, at least I know exactly what they want. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. 
I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so the so the movie production is starting. Now it's you and Ali Sheedy and this incredible cast, Barry Corbin, Dabney Coleman, who I, I love adore. Dabney Coleman. Yeah, me too. Uh, and, and Barry Corbin. Yeah, and they're both just, it, it's like... The cowboy and the nerd, mm-hmm. and they're just, there's such a perfect conflict. I wouldn't trust this overgrown pile of microchips any further than I could throw it. And I don't know if you want to trust the safety of our country to some uh, silicone diode. General, nobody is talking about entrusting the safety of the nation to a machine, for God's sake. And what's compelling about those two characters is that they, is that they really represent two kind of uh, competing points of view, very literally in the story, but I think also kind of culturally, which is, do we trust technology or do we trust gut? Right. And Dabney's, Dabney Coleman is saying, let's trust Whopper, the computer, to, to, to launch missiles. And Barry Corbin is, you know, chewing his red man, chewing tobacco and saying, uh, uh, no way, man. Guy can't take the human out of it. You got to trust humans. But they mess up at the beginning, right? That's in the uh, missile silo, right? They, the humans mess up in the in the opening, yeah. Which is a wild entry to the film, and it sets the stage for like mistrusting humans. Three. Put your hand on the key, two, sir. One. Launch. Sir, we are at launch. Turn your key. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Turn your key, sir. We've had men in these silos since before any of you were watching Howdy Doody. For myself, I sleep pretty well at night knowing those boys are down there. General, we all know they're fine men. But in a nuclear war, we can't afford to have our missiles lying dormant in those silos because those men refuse to turn the keys when the computers tell them to. Turn your key. That's, yeah, turn your key, that yeah. whole thing. I was watching uh, the movie with my wife a couple of nights ago, and she <laughs> just goes, man, there were a lot of buttons in the 80s. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's true. The whole wall is buttons. Yeah. And, like, everything, it's like, okay, uh, ignite <laughs> or, you know, uh, switch operation two. Yeah. <laughs> it's like 30 <laughs> no. buttons to do one thing. Yeah. There's some part of our inner child that just wants to click all those yeah. fucking buttons. Yeah, yeah. Now it's just these damn touch screens. <laughs> I have one quibble with the movie that I just have to okay. um, I have to mention, which is that Bring you're, it on. you're you're very disappointingly bad at Galaga. Now I mean the, you're okay, that, but like there's you know, not I understand. 
<laughs> I do. I must, in my defense, tell you, you know, they edit it. <laughs> so, like in yeah, real life, sure, I'm whatever. Telling, there wasn't enough film in the camera if I had played at my best. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, I'll take your word for it. But I will say, like, to be able to work on a movie where the whole thing is like, you're going to get to play Galaga for free for as long as we're shooting this scene. They gave me a Galaga machine. I'm not kidding. Marty Bress was like, you should get good at Galaga. We'll send one over. Oh, wow. So my little apartment in Santa Monica had a Galaga in it. Oh, that's amazing. Which I could, I was so excited by that. Yeah, that's, that's huge. So what are some of your memories about culture at that time? You know, uh, in particular, some of the political landscape afoot, Reagan as president. Were you feeling any of the Cold War? (laughs) Well, um, I think everybody felt it a little. What I remember, um, you know, Reagan saying he was going to put weapons in space and uh, people saying that was going to get everybody killed and... uh, that really pissed off the Russians. Yes. So it, it was scary to read about all these, you know, every time we would add a missile system, they would add one or and vice versa. And it was, uh, you could read articles that would say there's absolutely no way this can end except for everybody being blown up pretty soon. Yeah. Mutual destruction. Yeah. Mad, right? I had a book with pictures in it called Mad, I think. Mutual Assured Destruction. And that and that book proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that we had about five years as a planet. <laughs> Ever since the 1960s, I, I would say, even maybe the late 1950s, we were seeing this constant buildup of nuclear facilities and uh, nuclear warheads I remember I was in grammar school after World War II, and we had, you know, constant drills for what would happen with nuclear explosions. You know, I'm sure you've heard the phrase duck and cover, you know, that we were going to duck under our little third grader desks, and that was going to save us from the nuclear bomb. And you knew that it was going to fly off the handle in some crazy way, but nobody was doing anything about it. And of course, this is before Gorbachev took down the wall and, and so on. Basically, it was a scary kind of world where often your reaction was to, like the ostrich, bury your head in the sand and just hope to hell it went away without blowing up the planet. The military has thought up hundreds of different scenarios of possible ways that things could happen as they're trying to get around this problem of how do you make the right decision? It's, it's just way too complicated a problem for us to be cleanly and easily dealing with. You know, it had originally it had an ending where a, a bomb went off, I believe. Oh, wow. Like, I remember there was some scene where I'm looking in a mirror at the very end. I wake up, I'm home, it's all over, you know? And I get up and brushing my teeth or something, and there's a flash of light, and all the skin burns off of my face or something. What? Yep. And then uh, I wake up. 
Oh, okay. So it's yeah. just a little nightmare that David Lightman had after going through this whole thing. Right, right. Which, you know, wisely, they when they edited, they were like, no, it's over in that war room. Yeah. Greetings, Professor Falcon. Hello, Joshua. Strange game. The only winning mood is not to play. It was the closest thing to an anti-war message that that we had, because we didn't want to make it a big preachy movie. It was meant to be something that was very entertaining, but that could, at the very end, zing you with something that you go, oh, yes, yes. We did want it to be a warning to some degree. Yeah. You know, uh, everybody there was like everybody else, scared of nuclear war. So Yeah, it's such a backdrop for the whole thing. The air you were breathing was fear. Yes. Fear of technology, fear of nuclear annihilation. And this movie kind of like really hits both, the, the technology and the weapons. Definitely. And, and now that I think of it, some people were into disarmament and some were not. So we were, everybody who made that movie, I think, was very on the side of disarmament you know they wanted they wanted uh reagan and gorbachev to make a deal so if it has a political point of view i'm sure it's that they everybody there wanted it to make deals with russia and not just keep building weapons well it's a great magic trick that way because it's it's unbelievably entertaining and fun to watch but it also uh you know from a sort of like commentary standpoint allows you to play out the fantasy of nuclear annihilation mm. and hopefully scare you a little bit or scare the political establishment a little bit into doing something. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, 
You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the film actually came out, it, it definitely uh, had an influence. And it, uh, thank goodness it was, a, it was a big success at the box office. So we knew that our film was being seen by many, many people and especially by by an audience of, of young people who could identify with Matthew and Allie. Remember, the time that we're in, nobody understood computers very much. Certainly adults did not. The kids were understanding it and were getting it right away. And the adults were thinking, well, that's stupid. No, no little kid could do this. There were many articles in different newspapers that said, this is complete baloney. None of this could possibly happen. This is all ridiculous. That was part of the part of the drama and the and the humor of it. That it was it was not some some evil Russian or evil Germanic force. God knows what what it could be. But it was just just a little kid being playful and and playing with outmoded equipment. Well, the, the wonderful thing about about movies is you can often look beyond what's possible, and sometimes sometimes you can be spot on with it, and and in in seeing things that could happen in the future. Well, it wasn't more than a couple of weeks after the movie that was released. Uh, suddenly, in from I believe Minnesota, three guys broke into NORAD. Or they, or they broke into the Defense Department's computer. Our whole defense system was much more fragile and much more vulnerable than anybody wanted to announce. And here are young kids, maybe inspired by our movie, or just maybe because they were out there all along, that they were actually, you know, breaking, breaking into places. When Reagan came into office, uh, we, had, we had made the film and one of the first things that he happened to do when he was in office was to run war games for he and Nancy at the at the White House one night and and he started talking about uh how we how we could fight these nuclear problems with our Star Wars defense and he started talking about that and they said well this is ridiculous this, we don't have technology that would be anything like that. He said, yes, we do. Nancy and I saw this film the other night, War Games, and they have that kind of technology. Well, Mommy and I were watching this movie, War Games, and we were thinking that we could do the same thing. Mommy was very happy about seeing it. Are you aware that Ronald Reagan screened the movie 
uh, right after it came out? No. This is an amazing story. The New York Times did a piece on this uh, a bunch of years ago. Ronald Reagan uh, watched it just, you know, kicking back with Nancy at Camp David, just watching a, a pop culture movie. It rattled him so badly that he called in his defense establishment, all the, uh-huh. you know, the, the big wigs uh, into the White House. And, and he said, is this possible? Is it possible that some rogue kid could, or or worse, like a Russian actor, uh, penetrate our our computer systems and our missile systems and so forth? And the 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 takeaway was, yeah, it's a little more possible than any of us would like to admit. And so that precipitated uh, some of the very first cybersecurity policy. Wow, you know, for, from a national defense standpoint. Wow, that's very yeah. You're welcome, everybody. Um. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Special thanks to Matthew Broderick and John Batham for joining us to talk all things war games. Next week, we have another bonus episode where I interview a Cold War KGB agent. So check back for that. You're not going to want to miss it. Snafu is a production of iHeartRadio, Film Nation Entertainment, and Pacific Electric Picture Company in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Ed Helms, Milan Papelka, Mike Falbo, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. Our lead producers are Sarah Joyner and Alyssa Martino. Our producer is Carl Nellis, associate producer Tori Smith. This bonus episode was edited by Carl Nellis and Dustin Brown. Our senior editor is Jeffrey Lewis. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. Our creative executive is Brett Harris. Engineering and technical direction by Nick Dooley. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Azenstadt. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.